welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about the idea of restraint in U.S. foreign policy, as opposed to decades of U.S. military intervention across the world. And we discuss how armed interventions in the Middle East have in fact caused more problems than they solved. My guest today is John Glazer, Director of Foreign Policy at the Cato Institute here in Washington. John, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, let's first talk about this idea of restraint in Europe's foreign policy or grand strategy. There is an increasing number of thinkers um, here in Washington in the think tank world that are now rethinking basically U.S. foreign policy towards the world and also especially towards the Middle East, the region and Iran in particular Explain what this idea of restraint as opposed to intervention is and why do you think that that should be a preferred foreign policy for the United States? Restraint is basically the idea that the United States should have a narrow uh, set of interests that define its foreign policy. Um, it's, it's best defined really by its opposite, which is the approach that we currently have to the world which is one where we need to use our military and our large economy to project power around the globe, police the world, you know, get deeply involved in the internal conflicts of not only certain countries, but certain regions as well. And um, it's essentially a global police role. And restraint calls for essentially the opposite of that. Restraint calls for retrenching from the world, for essentially the United States to adopt roughly a normal foreign policy, because the United States is actually very, very unique uh, in the world in, in terms of how our foreign policy looks. You know, we have something some like 800 bases in 70 or 80 countries around the world. You know, the country with the next most overseas bases is, uh, I think, England. You know, some leftovers from colonial times. It's got like 13. You know, Russia has nine. We're way overdoing it with the expansiveness and just amount of money and manpower and blood and treasure that we waste on a very ambitious and interventionist foreign policy. And so restraint calls for an end to that. It says we're not so endangered that we need to be roaming the globe all the time. We're not so um, important to global order that we need to police it and so on. Uh, it's a time to kind of roll back, focus on problems at home, and spend much less money and time and resources uh, abroad. Um, so just to look at it from the opposite side, why do you think that U.S. should not be the world police? And meaning if there is a gap or a, a lack of that form of um, power, what do, what would you do in the case of failed states, in the case of, you know, terrorist groups roaming around the, the world and just basically the thinking or the threat that's been projected in the past at least two decades when the war on terror started and picked up and um, the policy that the interventionist policy that you were just explaining, especially towards the Middle East, um, was was going on full speed. But what is your answer to to that question as not only the other side, but just observers, people both here in the U.S., people in the region and people around the world who look to the U.S. for leadership, for, you know, form of this projecting of the power and policing of what they see as a bad forces around the globe and also in that region? 
Yeah, it's an important question. And uh, look, the other side says that this expansive interventionist foreign policy that the United States has pursued, this grand strategy of liberal hegemony or primacy, as it's sometimes called, um, has made the world safer, has prevented World War III, has made the world more economically wealthy uh, and increased trade and all kinds of things. Um, so this belief that world order or peace, global peace and global wealth depends on a strong and dominant and interventionist United States, that's a claim. It's hard to uh, fully rebut that claim because we can't run the historical experiment again and see if the United, if the world would have turned out roughly the same had the United States not been a belligerent mm -hmm. uh, militarist. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a little tough, but I, uh, the, the basic contention of restraint is that the United States is so powerful and so geographically isolated. You know, we have two giant moats, uh, big oceans to our east and west, which are act as a kind of defensive uh, measure against most kinds of uh, conventional threats. We have weak and pliant neighbors to the north and south. The Western Hemisphere is pretty peaceful, pretty safe. No other great powers in this hemisphere. Um, we're very rich. We have a strong military. Uh, we have a nuclear deterrent. The basic idea behind restraint is we're very, very safe. And so all these things that we do to go out and roam around the globe and extinguish terrorism and fight the enemies of progress are actually extracurricular. They're way beyond the minimum that is required to, to do what the United States government is supposed to do in, in the realm of defense, which is protect this nation, its borders, and its people. And so since we're really safe and since these threats tend to be exaggerated, we can afford to kind of step back a little. It's almost like saying we can tolerate a certain level of disorder. I'm not saying the world is perfect. But we can tolerate a certain level of disorder because it rarely rises past the threshold where it substantially undermines U.S. security. But even more so because the evidence from the last 30 or 40 years of U.S. engagement, especially in some place like the Middle East, it's very clear that we do not have viable solutions to the region's problems. And our attempts to implement proposals uh, in the past have really actually exacerbated the disorder rather than mitigated it. So I don't trust that the planners in Washington have the wisdom or the foresight or the capability to fully implement their plans, and they tend to be the wrong plans anyways. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that this idea, looking back at least the past two decades of U.S. policy in the Middle East, it obviously hasn't worked from wars to military intervention to you know, maximalist positions towards adversaries. And we're going to talk about everyone in a short while. Let me just mention that we recently had Matt Doss um, on this podcast, and he's written a piece um, about fairly the same um, general topic. And I like a line in his piece where he says the United States, and he's talking about the global war on terror in the past two decades, saying the United States went abroad in search of monsters and ended up midwifing new ones. And I think this brings us back to what you were saying as far as what sounds like it's going to work and what in reality is going to work and why the United States should be so entangled. So let's talk about 
policy towards Iran specifically? You know, you are a supporter of the of diplomacy negotiations with Iran. You are a supporter of the nuclear deal. Talk about why you think the nuclear deal is important. Why diplomacy with Iran is important now that there's a new administration in Washington. And then we can talk about the next steps for for both sides that and the recent developments in the past week. Sure. I actually might be able to reveal a little secret about my support of the JCPOA because I sure. think there's something different about it than than a lot of others. You know, there's a there's a very strong belief among many, many folks here here in DC, well-intentioned folks, that the United States needs to act very aggressively towards non-proliferation. We should employ ourselves in a diplomatic fashion wherever we can. Mm-hmm to uh, you know, deal with potential arms races and reduce uh, the tension and the temperature by, by uh, making sure that new states don't get nuclear weapons. That's a, a, something that I generally share, that, that hope. I, I don't think proliferating nuclear weapons is a good thing, mm-hmm. but I also think that the, the notion that we're, what we're really engaged here over, over the, the real dispute is the notion that Iran can't have nuclear weapons. That's that's actually, I think, not at the center of it. It needs to be because that's what like diplomats need to talk about in order to do something and achieve something. But, you know, I think the Obama administration initiated uh, diplomacy with Iran because they foresaw that things were on a track with this, you know, multi-decade um, long rivalry that could just get very dangerous. We could get on the war path and tensions could rise and um, short-sighted policymakers on both sides could increase tensions. And who knows, it could escalate to something very ugly. And I think the Obama people saw that we should really try to get off that track and approach the, the region in a, in a more even-handed manner where we can approach our, you know, those countries that are right now considered strong U.S. partners like Israel and Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Gulf states. You know, we're very rigidly locked into them, and we're very rigidly locked onto Iran, Iran as an adversary. And I think the JCPOA, or this, even though the justification was preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, I don't think they want one. I don't think they see it as in their interests. I don't think they're on the verge and so on. But uh, nevertheless, they see it as sort of leverage in negotiations with the United States. And so I think it's really, diplomacy with Iran is really about getting off the war path changing the dynamic of the relationship, being able to recognize where mutual interests between the two parties do overlap, and being less tied to the whims and uh, regional preferences of our partners. Uh, for, you know, we've been tied to that for, I think, way too long. So it's, it's sort of making U.S. policy in the region independent and making it so that we can have a, a normal diplomatic relations with Iran, as opposed to this sort of ridiculous enemy image of Iran that just is has not moved uh, or been sufficiently shaken up over the mm-hmm. decades to get us to realize you know that the caricature of Iran as 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 a US enemy is is really very far from the truth. Mm. And I want to uh, read a part from your you had recently had a piece that describes exactly you talk about Biden's path ahead with Iran and the JCPO. And at some point you explain what you just said that disentangling America from the Middle East will be very difficult unless this enemy image of Iran loses in Washington this inflated security concern about Iran as you explain it. But 
tell me why you think there is this inflated security concern about Iran. Why is Iran turned into this bo- big boogeyman in Washington that basically introducing any form of sanctions or pressure on Iran from both parties always is is completely um, accepted in Washington. But when you have a new administration like this Biden administration coming in, it's just so difficult for them to um, backtrack any of the bad policies or the fate policies of this previous administration, meaning loosening um, this this pressure on Iran. Why do you think that is in Washington? I think it's it's complicated, but it, it essentially boils down to three reasons. The first reason is just the entangled nature of our relationship with Iran. You know, you start with the U.S. and British uh, coup plot in 1953, and you go on from there. It's a very sort of ugly history uh, of of adversarial relations, and it's hard to shake that loose. It's a it rests in the minds of both Iranians and Americans, and we all know this kind of history. And it's just it's just hard to break that mm. pattern. Another reason is that, as I said before. Our partners in the region, these states that we're closely allied with, like like Saudi Arabia and Israel, they view Iran as their primary geopolitical, regional adversary or rival. And so to the extent that U.S. policy kind of gets gobbled up by our regional allies, or sort of we end up placating them, we end up adopting their priorities as our own because we are their big brother or their, their kind of protector. Um, And so that increases our negativity towards Iran. The third reason has to do with the exaggeration of the importance of the Middle East in US and global strategy. Because of of the oil reserves in the region, it is thought to be of the highest geopolitical significance. And that's just wrong. It might have been more true at one point that you know some measure of control or pacification of the disputes in the region was required in order to ensure a f- free flow of oil uh, through the Persian Gulf, but that's really no longer the case. The oil gets through. It's in all the. In, it's in the interest of all the states in the region, certainly all the ones proximate to the Strait of Hormuz. That that stays open and continues to deliver oil to the world. Oil is a fungible commodity sold on global markets, uh, you know, subject to the laws of supply and demand. And so, you know, we're not actually manipulating the price or supply of oil by being present in the region. And so, um, you know, I think that in general, we are quite self-sufficient on energy. We get a lot from our own hemisphere, if not our own territory. And we're not all that reliant on oil coming from the Middle East. China's far more reliant, for, for example. And so this notion that we should be the global protectors of this region's energy resources, as if we have the legitimate right to do that in any case, um, is, is wrong. But it's not just wrong on, on the merits, it's wrong in terms of this practical application of policy. Because what happens when we decide to pepper the region with military bases and have a roughly permanent military presence there. Right now we have something like 60,000 troops peppered throughout the region. Well, what happens is you get entangled, you get drawn in, you you start to adopt the strategic priorities of your your allies. You end up inflating the threats of your adversaries. 
And so we're just overly involved because we view the region as more important than it is. Uh, there's a lot of bad blood that goes back. I guess the last thing that I didn't mention is the terrorism thing, mm -hmm. uh, which with Iran is roughly sort of irrelevant. Um, it's not that they don't support ugly proxies that engage in violence. It's just that the primary uh, terrorism problem that the United States has faced since 9-11 has been uh, Sunni militants of exactly the kind that Iran is also uh, in conflict with. Uh, we, we shouldn't forget that the kind of tacit cooperation that happened between the Obama administration and the Iranians uh, in fighting ISIS, right? So these tropes about Iran being the greatest evil and biggest sponsor of terrorism and uh, potentially uh, suicidal in that it would attack a much more powerful Israel with a nuclear weapon or something like this, you know, all of that is the hysteria of politics. If you look at the cool prudence of just nuts and bolts strategy, mm. Iran doesn't present a threat and the Middle East is not terribly important for U.S. security. Mm -hmm. And we'll we'll get back to Iran's regional presence. And I want to talk about the missile program and some of the areas that you just touched upon. But let's talk about the JCPOA right now. You In your piece titled, you, the title of the piece, I encourage everyone to go read it. It's called Biden's Posturing on Iran Complicates Diplomacy. We've had a number of guests on this podcast who talked about Trump's maximum pressure policy on Iran, why it was a failure, how it's achieved none of the policy goals of the administration itself. And now we have a new administration. We have Joe Biden, who personally more than once promised on the campaign trail that he wants to revive diplomacy, he wants to return to the JCPOA. And I think Many of us expected that to actually happen very fast because it can happen very fast. And since the Biden team came into office, and you explained this in your piece also, diplomacy with Iran has been stalled largely as a result of Biden's tough opening position. But talk about this tough opening position. You also explained that the Biden team wants Iran to take the first step, but we all know it was Trump who left the deal. The United States currently is actually not a member of the JCPOA, is not in the deal while the Iranians are still in the deal, but they've reduced their compliance. Talk about how you think this diplomacy with Iran and the return to JCPOA should happen by the Biden team. And what is the holdup, in your opinion? Yeah, you know, I keep thinking to myself um, that my frustration with the Biden team for not more clearly signaling its intentions and what's behind its moves. And I, and I realize that's because I'm used to four years of the Trump administration in which, you know, the president could barely keep classified uh, details secret. <laughs> um, and so, you know, th there was just four years of kind of uncontrollable, ostentatious um, divulging of mm -hmm. every move in foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And I think the Biden team is being much more cautious and holding their cards closer to the chest. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not quite used to it. But in any case, what is happening? Well, that can be, I just to make a note, that can be a good thing in diplomacy because diplomacy, we all know, shouldn't happen on Twitter. But then we've also witnessed a clear delay in in anything, even behind the scenes happening between Tehran and Washington. So let's talk about that. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, so I think the calculation on the part of, on the, part of the Biden team is to not appear 
too dovish, not appear weak. Uh, I think that they are concerned about uh, hawkish constituencies on Capitol Hill and uh, uh, among our partners in the Middle East who don't want uh, a, a nuclear deal with Iran. Um, there are people in the Democratic Party that the Biden administration feels they still need to convince uh, on diplomacy with Iran, and certainly most of the Republican Party, if not all of it, uh, it needs to be convinced. And so that sort of complicates things on the domestic front for Biden to go out with a kind of bold initiative to return to the deal. However, that ploy is not going to work. The Biden team will not get additional support from hawks in Congress, uh, and probably not uh, in, in the Middle East either, if he placates them this way. They oppose virtually any deal with Iran. And so I think what's wise, especially because Iranian elections are coming up, it's widely believed that the, the hardliners in Iran have a leg up in those elections. The window of opportunity is closing, and it costs us nothing in, in, when it comes to national security. It costs us absolutely nothing to return to that deal right away as fast as we can. And we should, we should probably do it unilaterally. The Iranians have offered to do it in a synchronized manner, step by step, and to choreograph those aspects of it that can't be done perfectly in a simultaneous way. And we've rejected that. Mm -hmm. I just don't, I mean, the, the position itself is dumbfounding. Even when you explain it with, you know, Biden's attempt to placate Hawks. And, he, and the main reason is because of the context of the last four years. We backed out of this deal. We punished Iran economically. We imposed economic sanctions as punishment for their full compliance with the terms of an international arrangement that was codified by the United Nations Security Council. And uh, that, that little piece of background should be enough to suggest the United States should be the one, should be the first mover here. We shouldn't be imposing this kind of um, infantilizing set of demands on Iran, who has got the butt end of the stick. We should be magnanimous and recognize that we've made it difficult for Iranian leaders themselves to act in the uh, pursuit of peace because we've screwed with their domestic politics so much. You know, it when you impose economic warfare on another country, you're going to tangle up with their domestic politics. And the doves and the pragmatists that did deal with the United States and promised that it would work and promised that economic sanctions relief would come uh, have now been made fools of. They have egg on their face and the hardliners have won out in that dynamic. And again, um, it makes perfect sense to return to this deal. Biden hired many of the Obama administration officials who negotiated it and implemented it. Everyone knows it's a good deal. Everyone knows Iran will return to compliance. They have two years a record of full compliance. So we know that they can do it if they pledge to. And the Biden administration very well might be missing this diplomatic opportunity. Um, and, and that concerns me because then we might be down the road of four years of trying to come through with something viable to resolve this dispute as opposed to handling it right at the beginning of, of Biden's four years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I want to read a tweet from Dahlia Dasakay at Rand Institute and Wilson Center. She writes, getting a sense that we may read about the current impasse with JCPOA years later as yet another missed opportunity. 
And then she writes that it's not too late to get this back on track. And I agree with you. This window of opportunity is closing soon. The uh, presidential elections in Iran are coming up in June. And as we see the internal dynamics on in Iran, the hardliners currently have the upper hand. If the election was tomorrow, they would win. And a revival of diplomacy in the JCPOA and essentially an economic boost in Iran could change that equation for for the Iranian election. And then also, in general, the Rouhani team, this is a second term, and they're going to be out anyways, whoever wins the election, whatever side of the political establishment in Iran. And this team that negotiated the deal that, um, you know, was, as you said, there are some Obama uh, diplomats and the Biden team right now, both sides know each other, they've negotiated with each other, they made this deal. So it's just so much easier and can be so much faster for this team to work together, at least to revive the JCPOA. And the delay has been um, somewhat disappointing for for a lot of Iran watchers who think like us. Okay. So we know that the Biden team, at least that's a hopeful sign, has excellent diplomats in their team, people like Rob Malley and soon Wendy Sherman and others, even Jake Sullivan, who were part of the nuclear negotiations with Iran under Obama, and they actually made it happen. And they're some of the best people to get this done. And, uh, you know, diplomacy... It usually happens behind the scenes and not at press conferences and on Twitter. But let's move on from the JCPOA. Once this revival of the deal or the return, mutual return, however the two sides do it, once this happens, we also know that the Biden team, Joe Biden himself, has said it. Um, Secretary of State Blinken has mentioned this. Jake Sullivan and others, they also have an ambitious view on, on set of goals on other negotiations with Iran or resolving other issues with Iran. They've talked about Iran's missile program. They've talked about Iran's regional policies or regional presence, as they say, or Iran's, as Pompeo used to say, Iran's malign behavior, in quotes, um, and then eventually possibly even human rights and domestic policies. And as well, the, simultaneously, the issue of dual nationals or Americans in prison in Iran. How hopeful are you that at this pace that we're seeing this return to the JCPOA, that these other bigger issues that were obviously too complicated for the Obama team to bring into the negotiations back then, eventually they only achieved that one deal in one area. How hopeful are you that Joe Biden would be able to tackle successfully these other complex issues that they they talk about actually if you want to know the truth I, my opinion is that this is actually an effort to grab more domestic political support mm. um this is this is actually i think an attempt to satisfy hawks who thought that the jcpoa was insufficient Right, the, the the logic of the JCPOA was let's put Iran's nuclear program in a box, and that'll allow us to better kind of deal with Iran's regional behavior and the the other things. It was also just the reality that the Iranians refused to come to the negotiating table with a bunch of maximalist demands from the United States that went far beyond the nuclear program. I think we have to ask the question: Are we actually threatened by Iran's missiles? I mean, they can't reach U.S. soil, so the answer is. A flat no. Um, are U.S. partners in the region terribly threatened from Iranian missiles? Probably not. 
And the reason is that Iran is developing missiles in order to protect itself. They're a deterrent. Uh, Iran is not on the verge of uh, bombing Riyadh or Tel Aviv with a set of ballistic missiles. These are an attempt to deter close-by adversaries as well as a distant rival, the United States, the most powerful nation in the world, that tends to have a bad habit of overthrowing regimes and trying to establish new ones in their place. We have that habit, and we've virtually promised at an official level to do it to Iran at some point for many decades. So why shouldn't they want a deterrent to protect them from that? Look, I think diplomacy is good, but it's not just good inherently for its own sake always. The, the, the reality is any diplomatic deal, the JCPOA itself, for example, was sufficient to build confidence on both sides and kind of begin to loosen this enemy image of Iran. That deal alone had the potential, even though it only stuck to the nuclear issue. Diplomacy between countries, especially between adversaries, is not about solving every conceivable grievance that each side has about the other. It's getting to a point where you can tell that the other one has mutual interests, interests that align, that there's some trust, that both sides can actually succeed in pursuing some of the same goals. And if both countries and the, the domestic constituents of both countries are roughly satisfied with that, I think you'll have overall improving relations. The problem is that the JCPOA didn't succeed fully in satisfying the domestic population. There was too much politics around it with regard to the Republican Party and its opposition to the JCPOA. And so the attempt to expand into other areas like missiles is, I think, simply an attempt to do it over and uh, satisfy every domestic uh, hawk. And I, again, I don't think that'll happen. And I also am not terribly hopeful that Iran will embrace negotiations over its uh, missile program or its support for proxies. Um, you know, I, I doubt that the Iranians are going to put those on the table unless the United States has some corresponding concessions that it's willing to make. Mm -hmm. And I exactly I want to ask you about that, because one thing that I've, I think under the Trump administration, Trump himself or even someone like Secretary Pompeo didn't understand or didn't show an understanding for is that negotiations or agreements are give and take. You make concessions and you take something in in return, we saw Mike Pompeo making these maximalist list of 12 demands as, as conditions for Iran to fulfill without signaling anything um, that the United States was prepared to do and in return. But if we say, let's assume that this revival of JCPOA does happen eventually um, in the hand is, hands of very capable diplomats on both sides, and they move on to these other issues... What do you think the U.S., this, this administration, the Biden administration, is prepared to give to the Iranians in or U.S. allies, essentially, who want a seat at the table? Let's not forget that also. Some of these U U.S. allies that you mentioned, they're insisting that they want to be present and part of the negotiations. What do you think this side is prepared to give in exchange for... Iran making policy changes when it comes to the missile program, Iran's regional presence, relationship with proxies, and just military tensions that have increased in the past four years, thanks to the Trump administration? You know, I think that's the key question, 
because what you're zeroing in on is the tension between placating domestic hawks on the one end and increasing the amount of concessions that you need to make in order to placate those hawks on the other, right? Hawks don't like the concessions, but the reality of diplomacy is if you don't make them, you won't get your demands. Mm -hmm. And so what are the chances that the Biden administration will properly offer a set of concessions and, and the, the, they, will, they will operate on the premise that the relationship and the diplomacy should be reciprocal? They look pretty low to me. And I, the, the main signal for why I think that is their behavior so far. They have refused to even move first. They've refused Iran's offer to move simultaneously, which seems fair, right? If you're going to split the difference and you're dealing with two, uh, two toddlers that uh, are, are battling each other, you know, it both go at the same time, should, should satisfy both parties, but they're not even willing to do that. And so they're, the rigidity of their position and their uh, depiction of Iran as the one that's I diplomatically isolated and the rogue state in the, in, in, the, in the equation, you know, I think that suggests that they're not really willing to make many concessions. And so I'm concerned about the future of diplomacy. Mm -hmm. And finally, I want to ask your um, view about this recent piece or, you know, it's been a discussion on sanctions, but Peter Beinart had a great piece in the New York Times called America's Other Forever War. And he explains that the United States doesn't just bomb its enemies, as he says, it chokes them. And then essentially it's a focus on U.S. sanctions, U.S. economic sanctions. And right now we know there's this broad um, crippling uh, sanctions regime imposed on Iran and a number of other countries, Cuba, North Korea, but especially under the pandemic the in the past year. What is your view on using sanctions basically as a foreign policy tool, the effectiveness of sanctions, the implications of sanctions, the humanitarian impact of sanctions? We've had an um, uh, discussion here uh, specifically about the humanitarian impact of sanctions, but what is your view on the efficiency of this ever popular foreign policy tool that is economic sanctions? Economic sanctions are extremely ineffective. And the reason that they're used so frequently in DC is because they're, com they're politically convenient. So if the, the scholarship on this is actually pretty clear. It's one of those many areas where there's a rough consensus uh, on something in academia, and all of the experts in D.C. have the exact opposite opinion of that consensus. Um, that's sort of oversimplifying, but uh, that happens frequently. If you look at the academic literature on this, it's pretty clear. This, the track record of successfully coercing another country to change its policies in the direction that we desire, that almost never happens via economic sanctions. The only cases in which it, they could claim it's possibly viable, it was at least part of the mix, this economic pressure, there were many other variables that also influenced that state, right? And so the track record is extremely poor. It doesn't successfully change the policies of the target state. The worst part, though, is not just that it's ineffective, it's that uh, they are cruel. Uh, most economic sanctions, you know, in recent years, they, they get a little better, sort of more targeted. They figure out ways to target officials or people within the inner circle of uh, the leader of this or that country and so on. But 
almost always economic sanctions are inherently collective punishment. They're a way of starving the economy of another country. And that means harming ordinary people. They're just trying to put food on their table and feed their families and uh, drive to work and so on. You know, that is really a cruel manner to go about uh, conducting yourself uh, in, in international stage by, and, and by the way, this, con this politically convenient thing is really important. The United States is probably the most war-prone country in the world. Right now, uh, the executive branch admits that we're in something like seven to 14 countries engaged in active hostilities. So we're extremely war-prone, but there's a political cost to that. There's a certain threshold past which Americans don't want to support invasions of other countries. Mm -hmm. And so policymakers, knowing that they can't just invade Iran, be too politically costly, probably be ineffective, but we have this policy option over here, economic sanctions, makes it look like I'm doing something, mm -hmm. makes it look like I'm tough on Iran. So that gets me votes. Um, but there's also no liability because all of the harm, all of the cost, all of the ugliness of sanctions are way over there in that other country. While we can say, look, we're putting the pressure on Iran and so on and so forth. No troops on the ground, so Americans are happy. I'm doing something, I'm tough against adversaries, so Americans are happy. And that's why they're politically convenient. And that kind of cynical use of a sort of uh, inhumane foreign policy tool very systematically. I mean, that is a, that's, a, that's an indictment of U.S. foreign policy to a substantial degree. And I think we need to just reevaluate the entire approach. Why do we still have sanctions and an economic embargo on Cuba after 60 plus years of this nonsense? These things don't work. Mm -hmm. And um, just to reiterate what you were saying, poll after poll has shown that there is no appetite among the population here in the U.S. for another war in the Middle East with Iran or any other country. And since 2008, every presidential election in the U.S., the winning campaign line has been to end the endless wars. Both Obama elections, the Trump election, and now Biden um, was the promise of ending these endless wars in the Middle East. Uh, so, John, you wrote a book or co-wrote a book titled Fuel to the Fire, How Trump Made America's Broken Foreign Policy Even Worse. I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but basically there is this argument that Trump's rise to presidency as candidacy and eventual presidency looked like a break from the foreign policy consensus here in Washington. But you argue in your book that that isn't actually the case. You talk about different areas of the world. But I want you to explain the part about the Middle East and how the Trump administration, Donald Trump himself and people around him basically doubled down on previous U.S. foreign policy towards the region, U.S. allies, as well as foes like Iran and Syria. Talk about maximum pressure and just the military posture around the region. Sure. So actually, one of the reasons we decided to write the book was exactly this problem that Trump occasionally in his rhetoric landed on some phrases and slogans that you can find among people like me who want the United States to do much less around the world. 
So he would talk about burden sharing allies with uh, NATO and he would uh, rail against, you know, forever wars and so on. It's just that that never really translated into policy in any real way. And those few cases in which Trump tried to depict his efforts as sort of leaning anti-war or opposed to the consensus uh, of militarism in, in D.C., those usually fell through. There's sort of half-hearted attempts amidst an administration in chaos. And therefore, you know, I, I saw a risk in the reputation of a foreign policy, a grand strategy of restraint, taking a hit by being associated with a guy like Trump, who, again, the association is very tenuous. And, um, but, but I was concerned that that would take hold. And so I think we wanted to write the book to demonstrate and make clear to people that Trump, in fact, was not a restraint-oriented president. And U.S. foreign policy towards the Middle East is a good example. I mean, he surged in Afghanistan after talking a lot about uh, withdrawing. He um, quadrupled the number of troops that we had in Syria, uh, massively expanded the war there to include hitting Syrian regime assets. We bombed the Syrian regime, in its military bases, and that's a, that's a significant expansion of the war. Trump loosened the rules of engagement on our air war and many of our drone wars around the world, and including in the Middle East and, and Northern Africa. And so, you know, he, he dove in further with our traditional allies, uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel, gave them everything they want. And with Iran, once again, sort of maintained as hawkish a position as the most rabid neoconservative bent on regime change in Iran. Now, if you ask me, I don't think Trump actually wanted to go to war with Iran. I don't think he actually ever would have. But his view of international politics, I think, uh, made it necessary to appear tough. And it was also the case, of course, that his political nemesis in his own mind, his predecessor, Barack Obama, um, sort of made a name for himself in this massive diplomatic push with Iran to achieve the JCPOA. And Trump, I think, resented that and wanted to put Iran back in an adversary category. And of course, the maximum pressure policy that he employed was highly militaristic. We're assassinating important Iranian military leaders. We are uh, imposing harsh economic warfare, effectively an embargo on their country. We're making threats of regime change. We're moving military assets in the region. You know, it produced exactly the set of results that the maximum pressure campaign was supposed to prevent. So it incentivized the Iranians to start to expand the nuclear program. It incentivized Iran to increase its uh, its belligerence in the region. We saw an attack on Saudi oil fields that might have come from an Iranian drone. We saw seizures of uh, various vessels in the Persian Gulf. So, you know, it basically escalated, made things worse. Iran responded not with docility, not prepared to make more concessions in the face of Trump's pressure, but exactly the opposite. It was a huge failure and a perfect example of how Trump sort of leaned in to many of the pathologies of U.S. foreign policy as opposed to um, trying to work against them. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that you did mention that he boldly came out and attacked the regime change uh, policies of the past, nation-building wars, these ideas of 
you know, exporting democracy and so all around the region. But despite the rhetoric in the campaign slogans, um, the people that he gathered around him, like Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, and the policies that he pursued were a departure from his own promises. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think he he knew that the American people and a large part of the constituency that was going to vote for him was indeed sick of this idea that the United States need to be constantly at war, particularly in a uh, messy region like the Middle East. Um, and uh, he employed those kinds of slogans in his political rhetoric and didn't really care very much about implementation. I mean, Frank, we're talking about a guy that really did not know very much about foreign policy and still doesn't even after his tenure as, as president. And uh, he just doesn't understand it. And he thinks of things in a very caricatured fashion. And so being tough in an anarchic world was really important for Trump. Okay, on that note, John, I want to first encourage everyone to follow your work at the Cato Institute. That's C-A-T-O dot O-R-G. You, you can also follow you on Twitter. And I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you very much. That was John Glazer, Director of Foreign Policy at the Cato Institute here in Washington. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter for news about future episodes. You can also message us on Twitter with ideas and feedback at Iran podcast. Until next time, goodbye.